This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 20, Future Casting Medical Education. love learning. <laughs> Jules, you are such a nerd. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so are you. And your inner nerd really came out while recording this last podcast. Today, we're going to talk about medical education, which really brings out that inner nerd in Sarah. Yeah, that is definitely true. I do love to talk about medical education. But, you know, I think to get into medicine, you have to be a bit of a nerd anyway. And I'm one of the co-directors of Technology-Enabled Active Learning in the School of Medicine here at UC Davis. I'm also an instructor record for a course. So I get to work with all these brilliant, motivated young people. And I consider it a privilege, but also a huge responsibility to help mold these future doctors. Oh, man, that is so true. You know, my passion has landed more in the continuing medical education realm, but I still love teaching and learning with my colleagues. So today we're going to discuss the future of medical education, and we are going to do so with visionary physician educator, Dr. Mike Gisandi. But before looking ahead, let's go back a little. We curbsided several medical educators at a Northern California Pediatric Emergency Medicine Collaborative Conference, and we discussed with them how they learned in medical school and how they think medical education has changed. First, we travel back to the time of medical school, circa 1980s and 90s. Great, Scott. That's two to three decades ago. (laughs) Computers had just started in medical school then. We trained on an IBM 286 with DOS commands. And there was very little as far as education was concerned. So people would put some diagrams on there and there was a few quizzes, but all the training and education was lectures, cadaver lab, and clinical. There was very little out of the computer and it was all books or handouts. The electronic medical records and the ability to just sort of type all your notes and upload photos, and that was completely non-existent 17 years ago. So that's awesome. That's changed, I think, for the better. Medical school has changed immensely since I went to medical school. First of all, nobody reads books anymore. Everything is online. Uh, I don't even know the last time I read a medical book because, you know, by the time it's published, the medical book is also out of date. Um, I also think that medical education is more evidence-based. Now let's jump forward to the 2000s and hear how they learned in medical school. Well, I was very fortunate to go to a pretty progressive medical school. I went to UCLA, and we were already doing uh, a lot of problem-based learning. Um, We were pass-fail. We did a lot of collaborative projects together. So that was already happening. One of the hardest things about medical school was the volume of information I had to learn. And my school is pretty good about mixing up with lectures and small groups and additional learning opportunities and then assigned reading. And actually, they created their own kind of textbook syllabus versus like reading from all the textbooks, which just had a lot of words. Sarah, this is obviously when we went to medical school. So how did you do most of your learning in medical school? So I actually went to school with Dinah at UCLA, and there had just been a huge curriculum revamp right before that. So I was really lucky to to benefit from that. So we did have a lot of very collaborative learning and some really progressive ideas. 
That's awesome. You know, listening to others, even though mine was in the early 2000s, I feel like I resonated a little bit more with the people who graduated in the 90s. I was definitely in the lecture hall, the anatomy lab, or studying by hitting myself over the head with a very large textbook. (laughs) (laughs) The first two years were not very clinical for me. And honestly, Sarah, they were really tough. I am not going to lie. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are elements of how we teach and learn that are the same and maybe will always stay the same. Okay, so let's go back to the future. (laughs) And what changes do some of these faculty see in med ed today? What does the future hold? Okay, McFly, (laughs) now you're really dating us with the Back to the Future references. (laughs) All right, let's hear what they have to say. I think there's more advantages now with computers. However, I think there's over-reliance on computers. You still need to get in the room with the patient and um, actually see them and examine them. The computer can't do that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I think the hardest thing is just how different learners are and how much more adult learning we have to do as people move beyond the undergraduate education. Not everyone learns from lectures. Not everyone learns from... (laughs) conversations. Not everyone learns in one side or another. So I think it's more just integrated, diverse educational styles I'm seeing now. What I see as a big difference is one, moving a little bit more um, to competency-based education. So trying to progress the learners rather than on a rigid four-year scale, sort of seeing where they're at and maybe potentially moving them on a little bit sooner. But more importantly and more excitingly for me, I see that there's a bigger emphasis on diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. And it's really wonderful to see these new students really fighting and lobbying on behalf of our patients and trying to make a societal change rather than just getting bogged down in the nitty gritty of uh, pharmacokinetics or pathophysiology. It's the coolest thing ever. And I love it. And I think it really gives us a much more well-rounded provider. So I think with all the... um the simulations and all the technology, I really do see that um, we could teach residents, like have a, I don't know, some, like we have a paw fox at the bedside, we could have a video or a um, simulator that detects respiratory rates. And I'm not saying that it's going to replace nurses or anything, but literally the, the triage way of doing it versus how we're doing it now, I think that's going to change with the robots and computers and simulation. And that's where I see the future, like in the Jetson. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating to hear all of these different perspectives. Definitely. I know that you're involved at the medical school level, but my exposure to med students is working a little with the first years as their peak into clinical practice and doctoring, and mostly when they rotate in the ED with us. So I wanted to hear a summary of how medical students learn now. Yeah, so we talked with Dr. Aaron Danielson, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. He also did a two-year medical education fellowship, learning how people learn and how to design curriculum. And he also has teaching roles at both the School of Medicine and in the Emergency Medicine Residency Program. So we asked Erin, in broad strokes, what does the modern medical school curriculum look like today? So I think the most interesting thing right now is that in broad strokes, I can't say medical school curricula are all one thing or are all the same. They're actually really dissimilar right now. The same technologic strategies that are causing rapid dynamic change and disruption in 
all aspects of life are being applied to medical school curricula. So, for example, when I went to medical school, I was in one of the first classes that had lectures recorded where you could listen to them, and then you could listen to them at double speed if you wanted to, to go through a lot of stuff really fast and then find key points and slow it down. Now we're in a place where there's all these other technologies. You can watch lectures online, you can watch them in person, you can get watch content from other medical schools, and it's really all over the place. So some schools are still doing a very traditional framework that somebody from probably 1970 would look at and go, yeah, that sounds about like what I had, except it's got PowerPoint. They do two years of lecture-based content um, with maybe the addition of some small groups, and then they go to the hospital for two years and move on. Other schools are all over the place. So some schools right now are shortening the curriculum down to three years. Some schools are doing some stuff like actually having all the content be online and then meeting for small group work a couple hours in the afternoon or in the morning, and it's everywhere in between. Some schools have now just published some papers looking at having an online program that's all over the place. So five different schools are all using that same content and comparing that to the students from their current school. I think that the the other thing that, that's really important to keep in mind is that the one defining factor for all medical students right now is USMLE Step 1. So that's this big multiple choice test that everyone has to take to get board certified. And it also generates a number that, that while it's a controversial topic, is used to rank people for their residency match. But the content on it doesn't perfectly align with things that you do in your day-to-day -day work as a physician. It's heavily biased towards knowledge-based stuff, and like any multiple-choice test, it's based on knowledge retrieval as opposed to complicated things like figuring out how to get a patient physical therapy in the outpatient setting, which involves multidisciplinary work and communication skills. So students are very focused on it because they see it as the thing that controls where they match for residency. There's big debate amongst medical schools in general at the at the dean level, but also at the student level about how much of the curriculum should be focused directly what's on that test and how much should be focused on other things that, that are important for other parts of being a physician. So what does Aaron see as some of the changes in how our learners are learning? Learning in medical school is increasingly becoming a solo process where you can work by yourself from home. So you can stay at home and you can access content online, which means that you can get up whenever you want and you can stay in your pajamas and you can go to sleep whenever you want. And that has a lot of benefits to it. Um, the stuff that students do come to at medical school in general tends to be more collaborative. So small group work, students solving problems that are in a case-based format together, but again, still using a lot of technology. So it's very common for students to bring laptops with them to these sessions. Sometimes it's even required. And so they have access to a vast array of primary and secondary literature just at their fingertips, um, search through Google or NCBI or any of these online platforms to try and find answers to questions. So I think actually from the student perspective, they spend most of their time either at home or in a library. A lot of schools that are changing their curricula are reducing in-class contact hours a whole lot. And when students have the choice, usually you'll see that most students are, are moving away from going to those optional sessions. They only show up for what they're told they have to show up for. 
Man, I spent a lot of time in the classroom, but the farther we got along in medical school, the less people that were in the lecture hall with me. I wanted to know from Aaron, why do so many students opt out of the classroom-based sessions? I think that it strives from a problem that's our framing of medical school. So the modern idea of what a doctor was supposed to know was generated over 100 years ago in the Flexner Report, which is this report written to basically solve the problem of medical schools being something that you and I could start in our garage and then you could get a little certificate and go practice, quotes medicine, end quote. And so they tried to standardize it and they said that you needed to know a certain amount of science. The problem is that the amount of science when that report was written is stuff that we all cover in high school, but we have continued on this trajectory of trying to make every medical student know all of science as part of their medical school. And if you think about it, you know, that includes the advent of molecular biology and rapid diagnostics and gene chips and and, genetic sequencing, all these things. And so the amount of knowledge that's on the test has just gone up and up and up. But the amount of time available for medical school has not changed. And at the same time, we've seen the rise of these incredible concepts that you guys talk about on your podcast, system science, knowing about cultural identity of patients from very different cultural backgrounds, and how do you navigate that when you might see a hundred different cultures in the span of a week in your practice? That's a really complicated set of things that are completely different from just knowing how a PCR reaction works. And so the students are faced with this almost unsolvable problem of needing to know more and more fit into the same amount of time. And part of that is on us as educators to try and think big picture and go, okay, well, realistically, what are the things that we can triage? So it would be best if everybody knew all of this, but in the absence of wanting medical school to last a decade, what else are we going to do? We have to remove something. My opinion as an educator is we need to start big to small with case-based learning. So somebody comes in short of breath, let's work down from there, as opposed to going, how does breathing work? Well, let's start at the alveoli and work up. I don't know about you, but I haven't looked at somebody's alveoli on purpose in a long time. And if I can see them, it's a big problem. (laughs) And it is such a challenge and responsibility educating a doctor. You know, it was really revealing to me, Sarah, to understand about the Flexner Report from 1910 and how medical education is based off of this concept that we need to know all of science. But science has evolved incredibly, never mind the practice of medicine. Yeah, that was kind of an aha moment for me, too. And I bet that Flexner back in 1910 would have had a hard time predicting what medical education would look like now. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's hard to remember back to my medical school experience, never mind forecast for the future. Fortunately, Dr. Michael Jasande is much more capable of that than I am. (laughs) He is an associate professor and vice chair of education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford University. He describes himself as an emergency medicine physician, medical educator, and med ed researcher. He recently gave a talk at the 2019 Western Regional SAEM Conference on the future of medical education and specifically emergency medicine education. So I uh, was future casting emergency medicine and its education for 2049. I was thinking about a a resident born today will be a 30-year-old finishing her final year of residency in Stanford's 54th class. So that's what I wanted the audience to, to think about. And I wanted them to think about the learning objectives necessary to train 
this future residence. And learning objectives in, in the simplest terms are, are skills and competencies, abilities of individuals after they've gone through a long program of study or, or an educational curriculum that takes many years. So if you think about an emergency medicine resident, their learning outcomes should be the ability to resuscitate a dying patient, to intubate, to deliver a baby on an airplane, right? So what will the learning outcomes of, of a resident be in 2049? I think those are instructed at best by thinking about how emergency medicine changes, how medical education changes. And then you can think about what do we need to do to prepare to teach that, that woman 30 years from now. So in terms of how medicine or emergency medicine changes, I shared um, an article by Tom Naska from 2015 in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education, where they paint a very bleak future. But they do so in such an interesting methodologic way. I want all of your listeners to pull that article because it's so interesting to talk about alternative futures. And in it, they, they paint a number of, I would say, primarily market forces, but some regulatory changes that will change the profession of medicine. They have eight, but I'll give you just a couple of highlights. Obviously, medicine will become more complex. Our ability to access data um, will cause studies to be far more transparent, where you're going to know not only the analysis and the methodology, but the actual raw data points where you can reinterpret it. So, so those are important considerations, right? We're going to have to teach our student to be working in teams that address complex healthcare needs. We're going to teach our student how to analyze journals in ways we weren't taught how to analyze journals, right? And, and to be able to address the massive amount of information coming at her and saying, all right, well, I've got to curate the information that I need to know for my individual patient at this very moment. So that skill of curation, I believe, is, is its own uh, new form of knowledge transition. It's its own new form of scholarship, honestly. They talk about medicine becoming a commodity where we reduce all of the things that we do to care for a patient holistically to individual tasks. And those tasks can be performed by people who don't need to have a medical degree, right? So think about how we were the only ones putting in ultrasound-guided IVs for a while. Now the nurses do. Well, the tech can draw blood. Why can't the tech put in an IV? And why can't the tech use the ultimate? They're very intelligent people that work side-by-side side with us. They can certainly do this. So when we reduce our profession to tasks and we become commodities, it will be a race to the most easily accessible or the most inexpensive, not necessarily the most high quality. And quality you know, could be provided by people who aren't doctors. So if you think about medicine, medicine is going to shift because of all of those market forces. But I think emergencies medicine responds to technology and will respond to big data and bioscience and precision health as dictated by recently the dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, Lloyd Miner, who, who really believes all three of those are, are part of the future. And I think that's very interesting. It means that patients are going to be using wearables and, and soon implantables as diagnostic tools 24-7. So does that change the very nature of emergency medicine and its profession, because no longer do we just respond to emergencies, we respond to unscheduled care needs. Because just because you went into AFib on your Apple Watch, you know, you can go to the website med.stanford.edu backslash Apple Heart Study. It, you know, if you have your iWatch and it and you go into AFib and it tells you you're in AFib, it doesn't mean you're in rapid AFib, it doesn't mean you're unstable, but it tells you to go see a physician. And that unscheduled care, that's really where our practice mandate is going to have to come. And that's going, to, that's going to change what we think about ourselves, how we approach our job. We're not resuscitationists anymore. We're accessible physicians with a very broad skill set that perhaps many other professions don't have. So what does this look like for today's educator going forward? 
I think in the next decade, we're going to get better at learning science. So teaching learners how to learn in ways that are evidence-based. So for instance, the use of space repetition and interleaving, um, elaboration, those, those sorts of techniques that, that really do have um, evidence, primarily from, interestingly, primary and secondary education literature now being applied in medical school, but, but still um, learning science. So we're going to see the application of that in the next 10 years, and I think that's going to become terminology that everyone who works in a medical school or in a residency or teaching hospital, they're going to be familiar with those terms in ways that they aren't right now. At that same time, I think technology is going to catch up so that we're able to get real-time learning analytics on our students. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, the the student who um, takes a test on an iPad and those scores get sent to a mainframe that dumps into uh, an easily digestible single-screen dashboard that turns red or green, depending upon whether the student is doing what they're supposed to or what they're not supposed to. And if they fail a couple of quizzes in anatomy, you as the instructional designer of their experience, as opposed to just their clerkship director, might might start to get data that you were never able to get before. And, and that might not be tomorrow, but that's going to be in the next five, 10 years easily. They're going to become easy to implement for large systems. They're going to be cost-effective, and it requires us to just to grab data and have it pushed into a dashboard, and, and you're going to design that dashboard in a way that makes sense to you and to your learner. And from that, you're going to be able to say, well, this person needs an individualized learning plan, and, and that's going to become the learner-centeredness of our well-designed workplace environments where we're going to authentically instruct and assess our learners. That's how I, I think those 20 years move. Or the final 10 years in, in my in my 30-year kind of plan is I think all of the tech, uh, the implantables and the wearables change the way that uh, patients approach their healthcare provider will cause our students to have needs for understanding um, how to address unscheduled care, how to respond to non-emergencies, even if those non-emergencies occur in specialties that they weren't trained to do, the loss of the specialist, the the broadening of the generalist, or frankly, just everybody's a specialist, but they are able to pivot um, or able to work in teams. Those, those learning outcomes are harder to teach until we have a reality of a patient population demanding those services of us. But once those wearables catch up and the implantables catch up and, and the patients access the healthcare system in different ways and for different reasons, then we have to teach to those patients. So I feel like that's kind of 20 years from now, you know, real-time chromosomal analysis in our emergency department, that could happen 30 years from now. Absolutely. So, so then we're going to teach students very differently when the science is different, but I don't, I don't think that's the next 10 years. I think the next 10 years is learning science. I don't think it's the next 20 years because that's the learning analytics time. I think it's it's probably closer to 30 years. But that's the time where medicine substantively changes. You know, Sarah, as he was developing this talk, he actually reached out to the Twitterverse for their ideas about the future of medical education. What were some of your favorite responses? Yeah, so there's one by Salim Razai. And here's what he said. One, shorter lectures with pics and videos more than text. Two, flipped classroom. Three, panel discussions. Four, pro and con debates. Five, spaced repetition. Six, deliberate practice. Seven, simulation. Eight, FOMED. Nine, critical appraisal. 
Nine, critical appraisal of research, evidence-based medicine. And 10, hate to say it, but there is no substitute for textbooks. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorites was by Rob Rogers, who suggested resuscitating bedside teaching, meeting learners in their space on social media, podcasting, FOMED, nice shout out, revisit the power of being a good role model in emergency medicine, incorporating learning science into education, and lastly, redefining the definition of an educator, a learning choreographer. I like that phrase. Yeah, Mizuho Morrison had a super cool idea. She mentioned tech and actually hologramming live lectures, so making Skype look old school, um, and agrees with some sort of interactive tech that was mentioned by some other Twitters, Twitterers, tweeters. (laughs) 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 And she also echoed Salim Rezai's list and mentioned interpersonal skills, so trainees could use added training on how to talk to families, deliver bad news, and interact with challenging consultants, etc., Shannon McNamara said, the knowledge doubling curve is daunting. Medical knowledge is doubling every approximately 90 days. We are the librarians, not the libraries. Shifting from knowledge recall to data evaluation and management. Different skills with more knowledge and different tech. I don't know if the medical knowledge is doubling exactly every 90 days, but it is a lot of information that we're responsible for, Sarah. Yeah, and so what are some things that educators can actually start doing today? I would say our educational teams need to expand with individuals who come to the team with special skill sets. I'll give a couple examples. In in one of the JGME articles by Deb Simpson, it came from the June 2018 issue about the educator job roles for 2025. They list a number of them, but one of them is a diagnostic assessor. I, I think assessment expertise is lacking in a lot of our faculties. We're pretty good bedside teachers. We can teach procedures. We kind of know when something's wrong, but we really can't diagnose what the learner need is. The, the, the assessment piece has not really been a, a feature of faculty development as deeply as it should. So I think assessment is, is one. I think folks need to come in with a basic tech knowledge you know, I'm, I'm so impressed you guys have this podcast. I'm so impressed you guys have a chair that endorses this podcast. There's a lot of chairs out there who don't get it, right? Finding students in places where they're learning and, and keeping up with proprietary companies who figured it out 10 years ago and built Silicon Valley companies to teach them in those spaces, right? We, we're not there yet. Our academic faculties fell behind, um, but we can catch up. And, I, you know, I think hiring... You know, even just folks who can create a dashboard and know how to plug it into a computer in the right way so that it's not, you know, an administrative assistant taking raw data off pieces of paper and typing them into Excel spreadsheets that don't do anything, right? We need people who can automate things behind the scenes so that we're left to do the right thing, which is the curriculum design and the innovation, the creativity and, and and the medical care. Like, that's what we're trained to do. Another thing that I think we can do is help our junior faculty get um, certifications, if not advanced degrees in medical education as a domain. You have to have content experts to be able to partner with. If you don't have time to do that, you can buy your content experts. So I I joke that I bought my best friend last year. We hired (laughs) Dr. Stephanie Seabach-Sire, who's not a physician. She's a PhD whose um, degree is in um, program evaluation, measurement, and assessment. She's literally my best friend now, right? I'm sorry to all my other best friends. But Dr. Seabach Sire is just so smart on program eval and assessment. And she can look at a skill being done in front of her 
and and recognize that um, there are assessment data points that we're missing as the skills occurring right in front of us. We should measure this. We should measure that. I'll give you an example. She talks um, a lot in her research about interdependence. So if we look at the assessment of our individuals in our, our current workplace environments, we we do individual learner assessments, right? Sarah got the intubation or Sarah didn't get the intubation, but maybe Sarah got the intubation because Sarah's junior resident set up the tray the right way, right? Or because Sarah's three junior residents each didn't miss the intubation once leaving a bloody airway for Sarah when she got there. So, you know, that, that analogy can come from sports. Somebody has to set the volleyball before the volleyball gets killed on the other side of the net, right? But we don't talk about the setter all that much. But if the setter was replaced with another setter who, who wasn't the normal setter, all of a sudden the kills don't happen as much, right? So, you know, taking those sports analogies and bringing them to team-based sport of emergency medicine, that's the kind of work she does. And those are the kind of assessment innovations that, gosh, I just don't think we're, we're trained to, to recognize. So if you don't have time to send your junior faculty to get to the degrees, we need to be partnering with education methodologists who are experts, just like we're experts in healthcare, and recognize that symbiotic relationship can really advance our programs exponentially. So that sounds great, but these things are not cheap. They take a lot of resources. How do you get buy-in from leadership for things like this? If you are able to better assess your learners, figure out what their individualized learning needs are, teach them using mastery learning methodology, reduce complications from procedures, increase patient satisfaction, increase throughput, decrease burnout. Those are all measurable things that have huge costs associated with them. All it takes is, you know, that, that one individual to change a whole department system. Sometimes those individuals can be shared by smaller departments. If you have two or three departments that come together and get a, an instructional designer or an education research methodologist, a data analyst, these are how you start to build programs. I also wanted to know, how do you prepare educators to be these future teachers? You know, I'm kind of insidious about it, right? So we, when I started at Stanford, um, I tried to put a definition around who was education faculty leadership, at least of the programs that I'm, I'm overseeing. I think everybody's a teaching faculty um, at, at a department like ours. But in terms of which are the educational programs and who are their leadership, that those people got defined and Within about nine months, we started to have our own faculty meeting where that faculty can sit down and actually collaborate between educational programs. They can innovate. They can bring in speakers for faculty development. So I'll tell you how I run mine if you're interested. It's an hour and 45 minutes. The first agenda item on my meeting is called Wing. So uh, I have a raffle of a book that I think that they should read. I don't give everybody the book, but I give the winner the book. And the only thing better than winning is winning twice. So I get two books out. So it's always two <laughs> copies. But they're books that I've read and that I think, you know, broaden their skill set and often are not necessarily, you know, hardcore education textbooks or, or medicine books. They're, they're books on how people communicate with one another, how people advance their careers. So the hidden curriculum is everybody should buy the book that I just raffled off, right? So that's, that's one faculty development area. And then I don't do the the administrative portion of my meeting until after we've done some faculty development. So we have at least 20 minutes reserved for one of us to stand up and teach the group a skill they need to learn, or we bring in a guest speaker. Last week, our guest speaker was the director of the Educational Innovation and Technology Office at Stanford, and it's the folks that would 
create a podcast if one of our faculty wanted to have a podcast or who, who could do screen capture for lectures and, you know, all the cool tech things that like, you, you kind of have the idea, but you don't like, where do I go? What office is it? Well, we have an office of all of these people who sit around waiting for creative people like us to go talk with them. So they came over and gave a 30 minute presentation. I just, you know, the wheels were spinning in the room and all the cool things that could be done. And um, so, so I think that's how you get some of the skills, right? You just, you have to give people some primary literature to read. You have to role model some of it. I don't know that I'm always the best role model, but sometimes I try. And then you, you have to engage them in conversations about topics like assessment and learning analytics and topics that perhaps, you know, in the day-to-day accreditation world, we just, we don't have time to do that development on our own. So, so bring it to your faculty. I think two faculty meetings makes a lot of sense for, for the education folks. And now how do we prepare our learners for the future? I think that you have to orient them out of the gate to the different workplace learning environments and other learning environments, because they're not all workplace with SIM or classroom or small group room. You have to teach them or orient them as to the environment, how to succeed in the environment, what does a lack of success look like in the environment, what is okay, what are the rules of the game. We all know how to play a game. To get into med school, you've played a lot of games just to get there. So once you get there, teaching people that it no longer matters to be straight A. What matters is that you understand the content related to whatever topic that you develop the foundational knowledge to not kill someone someday because there's a moral imperative that you learn it. And perhaps you won't get the A on the test because you've spent time being comprehensive and not strategic anymore. That was a hard lesson for me to learn along the way. And I, you know, I think that can be extrapolated to lots of other simpler ways to orient our learners. I taught an elective this past quarter with um, several of my colleagues uh, at Stanford called Introduction to Medical Education. It was for first and second year, primarily medical students and, and physician assistant graduate students, but we also had some, some students from the genetics program. And we started out the um, 10-week elective by teaching learning science. And, you know, it was surprising to me how few of the students had ever heard of any of the words we were talking about, interleaving space repetition. But then when we would get into the discussion of step one study aids, that the proprietary companies were using that exact science to, to be the behind the scenes anchor for how we interact with their programs and their devices. They're like, oh yeah, they totally do space repetition. That's exactly what they do. And once I explained it, they were like, yep, that's how it's done. So at the very beginning of this course, we're like, this is how we want you to study for the rest of the course. And that was just a fair playing game. Like that, that should be front loaded in our curriculum. And we've, we've front loaded it in this particular elective, but that should be the first two weeks of med school. We should teach everybody how to learn, how to be the best learners they can be. I love the concept of teaching people to be the best learners that they can be. Honestly, I'm trying to do that with my kids already because I am not sure that I was the most efficient learner I could be. This year, some of our colleagues at UC Davis Emergency Medicine are giving a course on being the best learner you can be during intern orientation, and I love it. Yeah, and Erin Danielson is actually a part of creating that curriculum. And that is probably one of the most timely pieces of Mike's future casting. Each of us are tasked with continual learning, and no matter where you are in your career, we can optimize how we learn. Pulse check. There is no standard med school curriculum, and med school curricula have changed in some ways, like integration of technology, but we are still held to the standard of that basic science-heavy step one. 
Who knows what the future of medical education looks like? Clearly, Flexner, who wrote the foundation for medical schools in 1910s, could not have predicted what it looks like today. Mike Gisandi thinks the future is going to be strongly influenced by technology and market forces. The future requires purposeful leaders. We need a core group of faculty that focus on education and are trained as teachers, not just relying on the fact that because you've been a student for a billion years, you'll be a great teacher. And we need to use analytics, partner with experts in assessment to make education learner-specific. We are librarians, not the library. We need to help curate our learners' experience and teach them how to fish, not just to catch fish for them. Well, it was fun to reminisce about med school, or not. (laughs) But thank you to Aaron and to Mike for sharing your expertise with us. Now, if you had a time machine, what would you go back and change? And what does med ed look like to you if you took that time machine 20 to 30 years in the future? Share your thoughts with us on social media at Impulse Podcast or on our website, ucdavisem.com. We have another conference coming up, the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Update Hot Topics 2019 in Honolulu, Hawaii. It's going to be November 5 through 9 at the Kahala Hotel and Resort. Find out more in the show notes. Thank you to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for being amazing teachers. And thank you to OM Audio Productions. I'll see you in the future. 